So first I'd like to uh, honor the hard work that was done today. Uh, it um, becomes more evident, I think, as the days unfold where this work will take us. Uh, but there's a definite uh, sense of struggle for most people during the first couple of days of the retreat. Almost a kind of tension as their body and minds accommodate a, an environment that is not uh, the usual and normal. normal. Now, I would like to um, suggest, because there are many of you in the room, perhaps most of you in the room, have a great deal of experience in meditation, that we don't discard these first couple days as being the uh, transitions day, transitional days into that uh, quieter place. And then we sort of wait, uh, wait them through to get over the hump so that we can get to the, um, the stillness that often is on the other side of this, uh, this struggle. I am, um, for a number of years, I taught predominantly weekend or long weekend retreats because I was working full time and we using my vacation uh, to teach other retreats. Uh, mostly I was teaching weekends for a long period of time. And I got to respect what a weekend retreat allows. Most people think it's kind of, or can think it's a kind of a waste of time. I don't get deep enough. And yet what we are seeing in this first day or two is our ordinary mind, the mind that you and I live with. And we're trying to get over our ordinary mind to get to a, a different sense of ourselves where we can say, yes, I'm really now on retreat. And we miss, often miss the insight that being with the ordinary mind can show us in our attempt to move beyond it too quickly. Because the struggles that we are facing in the course of today and the early part of this retreat for most of us are the struggles that we work with day in and day out. These are not coming up uh, particular to this retreat setting. These are patterns, these are ways, these are attitudes that we carry with us perhaps throughout our life. And to want to move too quickly beyond that is to miss the groundwork on which the whole retreat is based, and that is learning about ourselves. A metaphor that comes to mind is a metaphor of being in a very a crowded room with a lot of stuff, with a one-way mirror at the opposite end of the, of the space, and the first day we're sort of plumped down into the room and we try to figure out what the room's all about and how to work the, the mechanism of the room and what is, what, what's going on. And uh, maybe by the end of the first day or so, we begin to even see that there's a one-way mirror at the other end. And then we begin to approach the one-way mirror, which begins to reflect our image. And 
for most of us, that's a very unsettling experience to see ourselves up close and personal. And then as we proceed even closer to the one-way mirror, we begin to look very closely. You can see through the mirror in a translucent kind of way that allows some sense of transcending the images, the personalized images that seem to fill the brunt of the mirror in the beginning. And so not to have unreal expectations about day one, it's a a day of settling in, it's a day of sort of getting our feet on the ground, understanding what this meditation process is all about, why we're doing it, why in God's name what I want to do here. It's often the day of, we call the packing and unpacking of the mind, where you think, well, can I sneak out of here without anyone knowing it? And uh, no, my roommate, he or she would tell. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, on and on we go about, and so then we unpack because we're having a good sitting, then we pack back up when we're having a bad sitting, unpack. And this is very normal. This is what retreating is, this is a struggle that every person that I know has ever gone through. And to sort of settle down into this process and to understand that we don't go around our mind, we go through it. We don't detour and get to a vacation spot, find a little closure and closure in our mind that I can rest. But the whole thing is what it's about. All of this. Now, I think uh, Jerry Seinfeld said it best when he said, uh, life is truly a ride. We are all strapped in and no one can stop it. When the doctor slaps your behind, he's ripping your ticket and away you go. As you make, make each passage from youth to adulthood to maturity, sometimes you put your arms up and scream. Sometimes you just hang on to the bar in front of you. But the ride is the thing. I think the most you can hope for at the end of life is that your hair's messed up You're out of breath, and you don't throw up. (laughs) It feels a little bit like some of us are having dry heaves. (laughs) So tonight, what I'd like to talk about, if I could, is um, life's lessons. The lessons of life. And... These lessons are lessons that uh, grow in depth and meaning as our lives mature and as our understanding matures. They are lessons, I think, that each one of us have sensed along the way at some depth or other, or we wouldn't have any real interest in coming here to join a retreat. It would feel um, useless to us. And yet these lessons really form the basis of the foundation on which the practice is based. They're not insignificant by any means. And all the insights along the way will go to deepen and enrich this foundation. So I'd like to tonight, if I could, uh, go through uh, these lessons one by one and just offer a commentary on them as a 
as they do come up. So what are these lessons? And how does our meditation, perhaps most importantly, how does our meditation encourage the development and the maturation of these lessons? The first one is simply stated, but uh, very deep in its understanding. And that is that facts are friendly. Facts are friendly. Mostly what we do with facts is either try to avoid them or to pin the blame on them, on someone else. And by facts, I mean what it is that we face in our life, what it is the inevitabilities of life, what goes on inside of us, our emotions, our feelings, our whole way of and direction and attitude, our purpose, everything. Now, having come from many years of hospice care, certainly one of the central facts that I'm most focused upon is the fact of our death. Now, when I say that, you can see how we compromise our ability to direct ourselves towards that fact. It's an inevitability, isn't it? And yet it's not one that many of us embrace or even dwell upon or reflect upon. And in fact, much of our culture is built around the avoidance of that fact, defending ourselves from it. And one of the excruciating lessons as we come into meditation is that we begin to see that through our ability to pay attention, through the bare attention that we give things and understand what we're doing here in meditation is that we are cleaning the lens of our looking glass, microscope, telescope, whatever metaphor you want to use, so that we can see the facts up close and meaningful. And for us to be able to do that, we have to have a sense that we can trust what it is that we're looking through. And in this particular case, it is our attention, our awareness of something, our mindfulness. And as we begin to focus and look at these internal responses that we have, the facts of our life, the facts of nature, the facts of everything... We have an enormous amount of opinions, a storehouse of opinions that are built up to accompany the arising of every one of these facts. Especially your internal facts about the things that are happening and who you are, what arises within you, your thoughts, your emotions. And every one of these Events, as they arise, are met by a storehouse of reaction, of personalization, of avoidance, of defensiveness, of struggle. And that's why the first couple of days are so difficult. Because we're battling the facts. We're in conflict with them. 
I don't want this to be a part of me. Anything but that. I'm going to get him. He did this to me. I'm angry because. And slowly, as the days unfold, we begin to take responsibility for these facts. Responsibility does not mean ownership. It does not mean self-blame. It does not mean saying, well, you're no longer the perpetrator of this crime. I am. It's my fault. It's all my fault. It's always been my fault. That's just the reverse process that we've been going through in our blaming. It means being able to accommodate them, to hold them, to be able to have them be a part of ourselves. Who do we think they're a part of? What do we think it means to be whole? Whole except everything but. To be whole means to be whole. We throw out the reservations. We throw out the exclusions. We throw out the buts. Everything. And you can see the job we've got ahead of ourselves. Because mostly we grind and struggle. Most of we're in conflict. We like to say, I feel this way because of you. And therefore, all I have to do to right the situation is to get rid of you. As long as you're not in the situation, in my environment, I won't feel that way. So I don't have to work with the feeling. I have to work with you. Elimination, please. Eraser. I would be fine if it weren't for my knee pain, my bad back, my diabetes, my headache, my sore throat. Don't you understand how difficult it is to have a cold here, to have a cough, to have an allergy, to sniffle? Yes. Facts are friendly. Facts are part of the whole thing. They're an invitation to see. They're calling forth. Everything wants to be united, to be connected with. Its rightful place is within our attention, is within our connectedness. within our responsibility, within our breadth of awareness. It's its rightful place. And so the facts must be supportive on the journey. We must feel that they somehow support the journey, that they're not going to work against us, that they're not going to be working behind the scenes somehow to manipulate, to distort, to create a downfall. I have to realize that even my death works for me. Give you an example of a woman, friend of a, well, actually a sister of a friend of mine, uh, was 42 years old and had never conceived a child, although she had tried her whole married life. And suddenly, at the age of 42, she conceived, much to her delight, 
much to her husband's delight. At the same time she conceived, within a few weeks, she was given a diagnosis of cancer. And the treatment options could have radically affected the embryo. So she decided not to have the radiation and the chemotherapy that was suggested for this particular type of cancer because she so wanted to have the child. Nine months later, she delivers a very healthy baby boy, only to find out almost the week of delivery that her cancer had metastasized and she had only weeks to months to live. In fact, when she was given that diagnosis, she had only six weeks to live. Now, you can do one of two things with that fact. You can become outraged, hostile to it. You can fight it as a bitter enemy. You can talk about its unfairness and become embittered and cynical. And I stop there for you to look at how you would relate if you were within that situation. And then let me tell you, or ask you, what do you think the relationship with that mother was to her child for those six weeks? You think she missed a breath? Do you think there was a single moment in which the connection was broken? in which the treasure of that relationship wasn't endearing? And was it because, I ask you this, was it because she included the fact of her death in ways that we don't, in ways that we sit here and think, why Why am I doing this? I could be out, fill in the blank. And is it because we don't include that fact that we frolic on the fields of forever? Facts are friendly. They invite wholeness. They invite connection. They invite completion. So that's the first of the lessons. The second lesson is that we can trust our experience. Now there are two things I mean by this. One is that as we wisen, if that's a word, in the ways of our life, we begin to understand that our opinions only see so far, that it's a limited light span. We begin to understand or intuit that there may be a different way for us to experience the world. 
And what we are doing here directly reveals that alternative living. For what we're doing are, as we sit is connecting with our experience over and above thoughts about it. In this phase of the instruction, we're not so interested in dwelling upon our thinking. We're interested in the facts that are coming in across the data line. The actual raw data as it's being generated through our senses. The experiences of life. Before our mind interprets, dwells, and embellishes that experience, which is often a curvature away from the sanity of the direct experience itself. And so for us to be able to give up the thinking about something and return to just the experience. You can see the difficulty it causes. I'd rather think about this. Of course you would. We spent decades doing it. It's the only life we know. But you don't understand. It's much more interesting. Let's give the other a chance. Let's give it a chance just to rest our attention with the experience and see what unfolds. All of the Buddha's teaching comes around the revelations of making contact with that experience. We can't expect it to have reached the epiphany on day one for most of us. We have to have the willingness to return back again to the basic fabric of our experience to see if there is something to this defies our logic, perhaps, defies our history. But has your life been so special and so graceful and so wonderful that we're not willing to test another alternative? Just for the sake, you're here. You've paid your money. Give it a chance. Give it nine days. And see if we can base ourselves and trust experience. Trust that there is an intelligence that comes from seeing and being aware of experience that is not the intellect, that is much more unifying and not owned, but is based in clarity based in seeing what is true, based in seeing the facts. So that's one part of what I mean when we say we can trust our experience over our intellect. The other is that experience itself can be held. And this, if you haven't experienced it yet, you will in the course, can be truly life-altering that you have the capacity to hold the deepest pain within you, to hold the terror of the night, the greed 
and the passion of the day. The anger and rage of betrayal. You have the capacity. We just have to be invited, invited to look and to orient ourselves in a different way to this experience. That means I can be with experience, accommodating, accepting, allowing of what it is that's occurring within me without the struggle, without the identification, without the self-abuse, the ridicule, the remorse that usually follows us when we have emotions that we don't like or thoughts that turn against us. We have the ability to trust and to hold our experience. And as we march through these days together, you will see, if you put in the work, if you're sincere, that in the course of even this simple nine-day retreat, you will intimate a different way you can live with yourself based on self-friendliness and affection. Can you imagine how you would be if you lived in your life with self-affection, with self-care, rather than with the normal animosity that many of us feel, unworthiness and doubt, So that's the second. Facts are friendly. We can trust our experience. The third is others' ideas about life are not a guide for us. We say, oh, of course not. I understand that. But do we? Because we give away our spiritual empowerment when we look outside of ourselves for the answer. When we try to read the face of our teacher or master, Roshi, to see what they want us to do or what they think is best for us to do. Or when we read the map of our culture and define our path according to the heritage that we have lived with. Because our culture is based upon a false premise. And at this point, some of you may have to take this as an assumption. But for others, it's a living truth. (laughs) That it's not two. It's one. And when the premise on which we have lived is based on two, T-W-O, then the syllogism is all wrong. A no longer equals B. And the whole house of cards comes tumbling down. And therefore, everything has to be questioned at a very primal and basic level. Your whole, our whole strategies of life, the whole way we operate, the whole, our intentions, the purpose, the meaning we have given life. And so we can't rely on the echoes of our lifestyle and our ancestors to give us direction to give us that purpose, to give us that intention 
Because the history of humankind, for the most part, has been the history of emphasizing two. And it's gotten us to this. Facts are friendly. We can trust our experience. Others' ideas about life are not a guide for me. Just one final example in that. I worked with a man who was a high executive at Microsoft. He was 36 years old and he was dying of lymphoma. And I wanted to see what he felt about his years of 10 or 12 hour days when he had two, three children at home and a young wife. And he held in very high esteem his work at Microsoft. There was no bitterness at all in what he had done. Or, but he said, you know, I misplaced my time. I was always bred. My family, everyone to look out, outward, and provide for the family. But very early on in my years at Microsoft, I had sufficient money that I could have retired very easily. And I continued and continued and continued. And now I don't even know my three children. And at that age, I think they were two, five years old, six-year-old. So to take stock of ourselves, so to look at us. What, is this what I want or is this what everyone tells me I need to do? Some moment we may wake up and not even recognize who we've become because we followed other people's will. This is a, a quote or a story uh, from uh, Fred Rogers. Mr. Rogers? Now, I always thought he was, I sort of had dismissed him. But after I read this um, anniversary, he gave a talk at uh, public radio uh, after 40 years, or I think it's 40 years or 50 years he's been doing this. And it's a profound article working with kids. Here's, one, here's a story that he told in, the, in his talk. He said, I know a couple whose five-year-old son kept pestering them to have some time alone with his newborn brother. The parents were concerned of his rivalrous feelings and that they might prompt him to hurt the baby. So they kept putting him off, refusing him. Finally, he was so insistent that they said, all right, you can be with the baby, but for just one minute. The mother and dad watched as their five-year-old walked to the crib. He didn't even touch the baby. All he did was say, what's it like? I'm starting to forget. We can be so programmed in how to live our life that we can start forgetting what our life 
resonance, what our heart really wants. Even at age five. So the next lesson is that growth and learning are always possible within experience. Another uh, reading. For a long time it seemed to me that life was about to begin, real life. But there was always some obstacle in the way, something we had to get over first, some unfinished business, time still to be served, a debt to be paid. Then life would begin. At last it dawned on me that these obstacles were my life. (laughs) How many of us have lived our life trying to get over the obstacles of it? We expect it to be a plateau, don't we? I guess get over this peak and it'll all plateau out. But Dharma practitioners, meditators, begin to understand that the bumps themselves are a call to purpose, to intention, are a call to practice. And that's why, again, in reflecting on today's difficulties, were they a call to practice or were they an image to follow in leaving? and packing, and getting out of here. If we understand that the very difficulties of life are the meat, the substance for our growth, the potential for that, then the circumstances are secondary. What, what befalls us is secondary. It's not that I wish for certain flat and peaceful circumstances although it's nice when it does arise. It's just that everything becomes the meat. Even within the most difficult circumstances, such as our death, the universe is offering a learning. I used to think, I used to have cleared out most difficulties and say, well, I can, I'll work, you know, that'll... The one that would catch me was Alzheimer's disease. Because I thought, well, if I lose my mind, what have I got to work with? And then I was, uh, I was at a retreat, actually, with a, with a teacher. And uh, the teacher said um, exactly what I was saying, that uh, he had difficulty with Alzheimer's, or he had um, fear of Alzheimer's disease. And suddenly he realized, well, if that happens, I can work with it. I got it. You work with it as much as your clarity allows. And then I thought, somehow, just hearing it again, and over and over, after 25 years, you go, yeah, I'll work with it. I can work with that. I can work with that. Even that, I can work with it. There's nothing. And then everything, when it's embraced in, with that sort of intention, leads in a positive direction. This is another leap of faith for some of us. But in fact, it does. It moves in a positive direction. So life doesn't work against us. And you know what? 
it saves an awful lot of bitterness. I've seen people die bitter, and I've seen people die with a warm heart. And if I can distill down their life to a single lesson, it would be this one. That those with affection and warmth use the very tragedies to learn and to grow and to work and to struggle, but in a positive direction. And those that did not turned life against them in a sort of antagonism, adversarial relationship. And this leads into the next lesson. That suffering is not whimsical. There is a cause and a reason for it. There is order in experience. A poem by Mary Oliver called The Lonely White Fields. Every night the owl with his wild monkey face calls through the black branches and the mice freeze and the rabbits shiver in the snowy fields. And then there's a long, deep trough of silence when he stops singing and steps into the air. I don't know what death's ultimate purpose is, but I think this. Whoever dreams of holding his life in his fist year after year into the hundreds of years has never considered the owl, how he comes exhausted through the snow, through the icy trees, past snags, vines, wheeling out of barns and church steeples, turning this way and that, through the mesh of every obstacle, undeterred by anything, filling himself time and time again with a red and digestible joy sickled up from those lonely white fields. And how at daybreak, as though everything has been done that must be done, the fields swell with a rosy light, the owl fades back into the branches, the snow goes on falling, flake after perfect flake. Even death has a perfection to it. And sometimes, as we begin to harmonize our life with the facts that have been mentioned, we get a sense of that harmony. We can look retrospectively at our history and see how the struggles that we thought were so devastating at the time of occurrence really led to the next step, the next opening the next movement towards the perfection of heart, the next step on the path. And sometimes we can see that. And sometimes we can rest with that sense of conviction that even now that perfection is occurring. And it's never or very infrequently seen as it's occurring because we take it as those personal combative struggles that life is throwing up to detour us. But even death. Suffering is not whimsical. And we have come here 
and gathered in this group this week to discover, to look, to investigate the causes, the origins, the reasons that we have lived a life of turmoil, of conflict, and to decipher the codes of that conflict, which are much more profound than the genome project. Much more profound. And much more life-altering, regardless of the scientific discoveries that come from that genome project. to decipher this, to understand. We need a tool. We need our attention. We need to focus in a way that we haven't before. We need to look at ourselves, look inside, in that scrambled room, see our reflection and move closer yet. Not to be undeterred by anything. Let the reflection come, so be it. And that is what we are seeing in these first couple of days, is our reflection. But as we approach that one-way mirror, it becomes translucent. It becomes the snow itself. It becomes the touch of the wind on our cheek. It becomes the part in the life, of the vitality of us. It doesn't burn us out or deplete us. It enriches us. And the growth that we learn is in a positive direction, and we have a sense of it being in a positive direction. And what it requires is a non-judgmental listening, a listening that doesn't contaminate, contaminate itself, a listening and a bare attention that we can trust. How can we trust our old attitudes and opinions? All we would be seeing when we looked at ourselves were our opinions which would have plopped us down on the same turf from which we have been sitting our whole life. We need a new scope. We need a new way of looking at the facts of our life. And so we can't let the judgment obscure or color that lens. Just to see it. Be willing to see it knowing that the facts are going to feed us, that the facts are friendly, that even difficult, yes, and I'll struggle with them, and, but to have faith that eventually they open up into a panoramic view of wholeness, of completion, of totality, of freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.